Question, who made you? Answer, God. Question, what else did God make? Answer, God made all things. Question, why did God make all things? Answer, for his glory. Those are questions that come from what we would know as a catechism. A catechism is a way in which we learn and grow and are taught the truths of God's word by questions and answers. We often use this with our kids. We're doing this a little bit uh, with the New City Catechism as a family this year. I'd encourage you to check that one out. It's a new one by the Gospel Coalition. It's a great way to teach your kids and be reminded of the great truths of the big questions that we have in life that God answers for us in his word. The question for you this morning is, where do you turn for answers to the big questions that you have in life? Is there a God? What is he like? Who am I? Why am I here? Why is this so world so messed up? Are there any solutions to this world? Man, there's a lot of bad answers out there on these questions. Maybe even worse answers sometimes when we're going through pain and suffering that we come up with internally. But where do you turn? And better yet, how do you answer these questions? The major questions of life. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He says, there is a God and he is not silent. The beauty of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings that we're going to start this morning is that God starts with answers. He gives life's major answers to the questions that we have. And this is why I think there's, if, if you look at philosophers over the course of history, there's not many Jewish philosophers. There's not many Jewish philosophers because God started with answers, ultimate answers about himself, about creation, about man, about sin, about death, about hope and grace and mercy and civilizations and culture and justice and government, where the nations come from, where races come from, where religion, false religion comes from. This is what we're going to be studying this spring. Genesis 1 through 11 are the very foundational questions that we have about life that God answers up front for his people. So we'll start in Genesis 1. I've always wanted to do this. Turn to page 1 in your Bibles. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. I'm excited. It's exhilarating to study this, but it's, I'll be honest, it's overwhelming. I was overwhelmed this week week with the content in which we were going to try to unpack. I, my wife asked me, how far are you going to go? And I said, I'm going to unpack the whole chapter. And she's, she just looked at me like, okay, let's see if you can do that. The Texans are playing this afternoon. But let me give you a summary of this text. Think about this. The singular sovereign God created all things by the word of his power out of nothing for his glory, and to bless his people. Let me say that one more time. The singular sovereign God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power for his glory and to bless his people. That's a summary of Genesis chapter 1. There's a lot there. Genesis chapter 1. Listen, when I think of Genesis chapter 1 and you think of Genesis chapter 1, a lot of different things come to mind. Did Adam have a navel? It's a question that I have. Novel things come. A lot of theories come out of Genesis 1 because we're trying to make sense 
of what God knows that we're trying to grasp for and understand. A lot of different theories. Is it six days? Is it long periods? A lot of questions, a lot of science that we come and and look at when we come to Genesis 1. But make no mistake about it, Genesis 1 is all about God. All about God. The subject of Genesis 1, like the rest of Scripture, is God. The person of God, your creator. That's what, let's not get it wrong, let's get it right this morning. It would be wrong for me to take it somewhere else as an expositor of the Word of God. Genesis 1, the main idea, the main subject of Genesis 1 is God himself. And that's what I want to unpack for you this morning. I want to show you four specific things about your creator. And surely there are other implications. We can do brown bags on all kinds of things in Genesis. But Genesis 1 is about the creator. It's about your creator. So let me read it. Genesis 1, 1 through 31, God's holy, inspired, sufficient word. Page 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was, out with, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning a third day. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God said, sent them into the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves that which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts on the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God said, and God made the beast of the earth according to their kind, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every living creeping things on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have for them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Are you still tracking with me? I've used most of my words for the day. All right. Four things. The first one is this. Your creator is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. This is the first words that you see in verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to imagine for a minute something. Really, a couple of things. I want you to imagine being someone who lived in Egypt in the time of the plagues. You've grown up there. You've heard all the different origin and cosmology stories, weird stuff. You've learned about all the, all the gods of Egypt, the god of uh, the heavens, the god of the sun, Ra, all these different gods that supposedly rule over everything. But you've seen the god of Israel do what? At every single point, He puts those gods down as if to say, I am the one true God. And then they come out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea and they come to the wilderness in Sinai. And Moses goes up to the mountain and he gets some of the law. And what's the first thing the law says? Don't have any other gods before me. And he comes down and what are they doing? They're doing what they did in Egypt because that's what they were raised to do. That's what they saw. That's what they experienced. They were in a culture that was foreign and pagan, that had many gods and had many weird, by the way, if you go look it up, go watch a video on the origin stories from Egypt, where gods begat, I mean, hatched other gods that were over different spheres. So do you think it's important to the people of Israel at that point to understand very clearly in codified written form who their God is? See, when God sends them to the wilderness, he gives them the law and he starts to, and he begins to codify this. And Moses writes this between that time and the time of the promised land. So now imagine being a child that grew up in the wilderness. Fun time to grow up, right? You're eating manna from heaven that God is giving you every day. And that's all you know. You've heard oral tradition about the God of Israel. And you've heard oral tradition about all that parents went through in their childhood and walked out of Egypt, but now you're looking at a promised land that you can't wait to get into, flowing with milk and honey, and guess who's there? Some other weird people, the Canaanites. If you think the gods of Egypt are weird, start looking and studying the gods of the Canaanites. That's who's in the land. That's where they're going. Start studying their cosmology and origin stories. They're strange or maybe even stranger. This is where these words are given to the people of Israel by the hand of Moses. See, Genesis 1, it's many things. It's about God, but it's many things, but it's a polemic. It's an apologetic for the nation Israel to see that our God is singular. He is one, and he creates 
all things. You know what the authors in the, in, in the Old Testament, one of their trump cards that they use to see God as the only singular God versus all the other false gods? Look at this. We have a couple of passages here. Psalm 96. Psalm 96.5 says this, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. First Chronicles, the summary of the nation Israel, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord has made the heavens. Over and over in the Old Testament, what you notice is, is that when, when the people of God want to talk about their one true God that's created every sphere, not just created by different gods, they point out that God has created the heavens and the earth, and he's over all of those things. You see, Your creator is sovereign over all things. This is what God is teaching his people before they go into the promised land filled with milk and honey, with Canaanite people. He's teaching the older generation. I think primarily he's teaching the newer generation before they go in this land, remember who your God is in codified, written form. That's the polemic then. There's a polemic now that I would say. But look at the text, the beginning. Listen, this is the beginning of time and space, not the beginning of God. He stands outside of time and space. He creates time and space and matter. That's what he's doing here. So he's self-existent. He's independent. You can go look at the catechisms and see the way in which we define who God is. He's outside of that. He creates time. He's over time and space. He's the alpha and the omega. This is who our God is. He is Elohim. He's majestic. He creates it. He's eternal. He's self-existent. And then you look at the word create here. It's an interesting word. In the beginning, God created. That's a verb. He created. It's bara in the Hebrew. Go check this word out. It's really pretty an incredible thing. You never see this word used for anyone or anything else but God. It's unique to him. Here's why. It's really obvious. He created all things. He created matter out of nothing by the word of his power. When I think about creative people, I don't put myself in that category. There's a lot of creative people in this room. I have a brother who's an artist, and he paints, and he sketches. But here's the thing. He's creative, but he's not bara creative like God is. He uses things that are already existent. He uses pencils that already have matter in them that God has created. He uses oils. He uses paints and different colors, and he creates out of something, but not God. God is the ultimate creator. When I think of songwriters, Gatlin, I don't know if you saw this last week, but Gatlin wrote a song. He called me up like a week and a half ago and was like, hey, I know you were doing this song on John the Baptist, He Must Increase. I wrote this song this week, which blows my mind. And as phenomenal as, as that is, it's different. There's, there's already chords and there's already words present that he used to create. So surely God has made us in his image and we are creative, but we don't create the way God creates. Even the most creative things that we come up with, and the, you think about the order and the design of a room like this or your house or a car, God has surely made us creative people and ordered people. But we don't don't create the way God creates. You're meant to see that right here. What does he create? He creates all things, all matter. There's nothing that's been created that he didn't create. 
You know, if I'm wanting to apply this idea, this idea that God is so sovereign over all things, I can go a lot of different directions. Surely, as I've said, it's a, refuta- it's a refutation. It's refuting, in Moses' day, it's refuting what you would, I would call polytheism or pantheism, right? That there's all these different gods that do different things that are over us. Um, but in our day, I think it's a clear polemic against materialism. Materialism uh, is the idea that all you are is a chemical process that happened randomly. And there's synapses in our brains that fire, but that's all we are. That's what materialism says. This says something different, that God created all things. We're going to find out more about those things and how he cares for them and where you and I fit in that. See, materialism doesn't give a whole lot of hope. You're just a chemical process. I'm just a chemical process. Naturalism says that nature is eternal, and everything else just happens in chaotic order. It's just chaos. That's what naturalism says, that nature is eternal. Nature has always been, and things just happen over a long period of time. That's not what it says here. In the beginning, God. So it's a refutation of naturalism, of materialism, and I'll just add another one. I'll make up the silly word, but meism, that I stand at the center of all things, that I determine all things, that I get to decide what is ultimate in my life and others' lives. This is the way it works in the world we live in today. In olden days, if you looked at this stage, and the world represents, kind of the thoughts of the world represent or represented and what's on the stage. I mean, at different points in different times, things like tradition have been on the stage, and everybody looks in the world to tradition to say, here's what, how the world works, and here's how life works. Science was on the stage for a while, I would say. We looked to science to define ultimate answers. But now, we're all on the stage. Everybody out there has come up here. And we're all on the stage, and we have our own truths. But this is saying that God determines ultimate reality, that truth is found not inside of us, but in him. And so that's the way I would apply it in that way. But here's the more personal question. How should we respond to the truth that God is sovereign over all things? Like, how should you and I respond? We want to respond well. And I look at Scripture, and what I see is Psalm 33, the psalm that Sheridan read in the beginning. That the way in which you see people in the Bible responding to God creating the heavens and the earth and being sovereign and powerful is that they humble themselves in worship and awe, that they find their gladness and their satisfaction in the God of created, that's created them. And they give testimony to him when they speak. So maybe that's the way we should respond as well with awe and singing and telling. It's interesting, when I look at some of these psalms, when I see the response of people to the sovereign God who created them, it's about worship and witness. That's what you see. So how is your worship and how is your witness, considering that God is sovereign? Well, God is sovereign all over us. That's great. Um, But here's a question that you might have. He's sovereign and great, and he's done all these things, but does he give a rip about my life? Does he give a rep about the rest of creation? 
Or is he so far above that, that, that his creation, he's created, but it's beneath him, that he doesn't concern himself with it? This is the thought of deism, that God started it, but he leaves it. He's so far beyond it. He's transcendent, so he doesn't care about it. Is that the God that we have? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 2. Here's your second point. Your creator loves and cares for his good creation. You see it all the way through Genesis 1. He's intricately involved. I want you to look closely at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void. Those Hebrew words, form, without form and void, or formless and void, maybe that's what your Bible says, or, are these words tohu and bohu. And here's what it means. It means that the world that he's created and creating is unfinished in verse 2. It's unfinished and it's unformed. But there's nothing wrong with it. So when you see darkness over the face of the deep, some commentators, I just disagree. There's nothing wrong with creation at this point. It's just unfinished and it's unformed. And the darkness isn't a bad thing here. There are places in Scripture where darkness represents bad, not good, judgment, for sure. But I don't think that's what's going on here. It's like a potter's clay. <coughs> so God has created matter, and it's like the potter's clay. It's just unformed and unfilled. Or an empty vessel. You see a vessel, and it needs to be filled. It's not filled yet. And so you're, you're watching. We're getting a window into God's creative process. We'll talk about why in a bit. And then it says what? In the unformed and unfinished What's happening? Who's a creative agent here? Who's hovering? The Spirit of God. The Father's here. The Spirit here. We know from other places that Jesus made all things. He's there. He's upholding all things. But right here it says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What does your Bible say? I don't know what translation. Hovering. Fluttering. It's like this anticipated thing that's about to happen. That there's care here. Look at Deuteronomy 32. It actually puts all three of these words together. The, the idea of hovering in Hebrew as well as tohu and bohu, the, the, the words that I gave you. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. It's a neat picture. And it helps us understand the idea of hovering and it helps us better understand these other two words. He found him in the desert land um, and in the howling waste, that's where we get uh, of the wilderness, unformed, unfinished, he encircled him. He cared for him. Same word as hovering. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle, here's the picture, that stirs up his nest, that flutters, there's the word, flutters, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on the pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God, there it is again, the polemic, was with him. Here's what's happening. God's Spirit is caring for and loving and hovering like a mother eagle over her little ones. He's caring for his creation. He's not removed from it. He cares for it. My daughter, my sweet daughter, is she in here? There's a picture of my daughter. Shameless plug. Poor pastor's kids, they get this. Two years ago, she wanted a bunny. She's a nurturer. She's like the animal whisperer for everything. When she was little, I mean, butterflies would just come up to her. 
And she would stand still, like and other kids are trying to grab them, and they just come, and she's this animal whisperer. She loves animals. And two years ago, she wanted a bunny, and so we got our Lone Star. And she has taken such good care of that thing. She loves the thing. She nurtures this, this thing. And so this Christmas, um, she has a cousin. And her cousin has lots of rabbits, my brother's kid. And I think my brother was ready to off, off um, give us an extra bunny. But, but her cousin said, hey, I really want to give you a bunny for Christmas. So you'll have another one. Um, and so this Christmas... Um, because I'm such an authoritative, you know, and decisive father, I allowed this to happen. Um, we got another buddy. We got snow. It's one of those meat bunnies. Like, it's got a gizzard-looking thing. It's got, like, weird eyes. I'll just say weird eyes are red. It's a big old bunny. She loves this thing. She will take this thing like that and just hold it. She takes care of it. She's used her own money to care for it. She's done this multiple times, but um, outside, she'll knock on the, I'll be in the kitchen, and she'll knock on the outside door in the porch, and she just wants me to see that she's holding and caring for this bunny just like that. She's nurturing it. She's caring for it. She loves it. This is a picture of what you see in Deuteronomy 32 of God caring for his creation. This is what you see in verse 2. So your creator not only is sovereign, but he loves and cares for his good creation. What's your response to God's care and love? Listen, have you thought about this? If God cares for and loves the unformed substance of what's going to be a full creation, how much more? How much more? Does he love you and care for you, the highest of his creation? You thought about that? You ever read the children's letters to God? Like the kids that write in questions they have for God. They're kind of funny. Um, one girl wrote in, in this little book called Children's Letters to God, and she asked God this. She said, you know, God, um, I... And really trying to understand, it's got to be really hard for you to love everyone in the whole wide world because I have four people in my family and it's really hard for me to do. You know, we're made in the image of God. God calls us to love our neighbor and care for our neighbor. So maybe a next application idea would be, what's your response to others made by God and called to love and care for them? You know, I want to stop here because I don't know if you have questions. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have all answers in Genesis 1. I don't have all answers in Genesis 1. I have questions. And maybe my questions are different from yours, and so maybe I'm going to give you another question that you didn't have. Um, but I have a question about Genesis 1. I don't really struggle with the, the idea of six days of creation or a short pot time. Um, I know a lot of people go, man, it, it had to take longer than that. I don't really have that question. The question that I have is, why did it take so long? Why did you choose God to take so long? You could have created all of this by the word of your power out of nothing in a nanosecond. Why didn't you just do it that way? Because to me, in my finite mind, and to me, in my finite mind, that would be more glorious. That would be show more power if you just did all of this in a nanosecond. 
And then I start thinking about that question. I thought about that question a lot. Why, why didn't, I mean, I know God did that within each day, but he took six days. He, he, he had this unformed substance, and then he creates forms, and then he fills those forms. We're going to get to that in a minute. And I just wonder, why didn't he just do it all at once? That would have been, in my mind, even more glorious and more powerful, right? And, you know, the best answer that I come up with, I think, is that God has demonstrated in his care, his intricate care, and his love for his creation, and he's reminding us that we need him every second. Just like the people in the wilderness were dependent on him for manna every second of every day. They relied on him for sustenance. Remember this. You know, we talk about the laws of science and how they're put in place, and, and, and that's how the world runs. Actually, the New Testament says something different. It says that Jesus, the other agent in creation, it says that Jesus, in Colossians 1, all things are held together by him. That God is still active every second in sustaining the universe. Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 says of Jesus, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every second that you breathe and take breath, Jesus is upholding it. He's upholding the world at every second. So this is a reminder that every single step, every single breath is a gift from God that Jesus is giving you. Listen, he's giving you breath and life and sustaining you when you sin, when you sleep, and when you sing praises to him on Sunday morning. He's sustaining Stephen Hawking's breath when he is uttering blasphemous things and teaching little kids that God doesn't exist. And when he's writing with a pen, matter that God has given him, he sustains this man's life and other people in your life that don't believe in God, that don't know God, he sustains them. So God is loving, he is caring, and he's also merciful to you and to me and to Stephen Hawking every single day. That is a great God. That's incredible. So God loves and cares and is merciful to his creation. We need to remember because I become very independent very fast. Do you? I think I've got my life together most days, most hours of most days. I'm dependent and you're dependent on him every single second for breath and for life. He gives it every single second. Jesus upholds the world universe by the word of his power. Well, how did he put all these things together so it's not chaotic? Because the world that you and I see is not chaotic. It doesn't fit the evolutionary theory of, of chaos. But what we see in creation that God did is order. Look at it. I want you to just glance through the chapter. He intentionally, your next point is that your, that your creator intentionally orders what he has made. Look at the key words in this text. He separates. He separates darkness from light. Do you see it? From the, wa the waters from the waters. I think that's the heavens from the waters above. I think there was an expanse at one point that's not there that came down in the flood. But he, he separates those things. Look at what else. The key word, gathers. He gathers seas from dry land. He separates the sea from dry land. And notice this. This is just a summary, but I'm going to give it to you. As you look at the days of creation, there's a lot there. 
And day one and two, here's what he does. He creates the form. So he's taken this unformed substance and he begins to take the form in day one and two. The heavens, the seas, and the dry lands. And so now you have a form to the earth. And what does he do in days three through six? He fills those forms. He fills those forms. Um, I'm just going to give you some words that begin with F. Okay, so if you want to take notes. In day three, he takes the flora, the vegetation, the, the fruit trees, um, the shrubs, the trees, all those kinds of things, the flora, and he fills the earth with them. I mean, this is his canvas, right? He forms it, and then he puts the vegetation in and the trees, and put a little fruit tree here, and put a little plant life here. He's filling those forms. And then day four, can you imagine this? Can you he hangs the sun and the moon and stars in place. He's filling it. And then you get to day five and you see fish and fowl and fauna in days five and six. And then you see man or for, the foreman, if I'm looking for a word. The foreman, the one, the vice regent, the one who's supposed to take care of this place. So he intentionally orders what he has made. And then he names things. That, that gives us the idea of authority and order. He names it and puts it in categories. And then look at how he produces things. Seed after its own kind. Seed after its own kind. How many times do you see that? Over. You see the order that we're looking at here? Seed after kind. You know what that means? That means that a rose bush produces a rose bush. That means that an oak tree produces an oak tree. That means that a fish produces a fish. That means that a monkey produces a monkey. And that means that a human produces a human. Seed after kind. You see the level of order in separating and gathering and forming and filling. Do you see it? There's order all over his creation. God is a God of order. And I'm just going to make one point. There's a lot of opinions about age of the earth. There's a lot of opinions about theories of creation and what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. Here's the thing that I'll say, because this chapter is more about God than it is that. But here's what I will say. You can't read Genesis 1 at any day or between those days of creation and see evolution. You can't see it. It's as if at every day, Moses is showing you that atheistic evolution does not, kids, think about your science classes, does not fit with this deal. What we often try to do to make sense of it is stuff it into Genesis 1. It doesn't really fit that way. You know, I was, uh, I was a youth guy and we were teaching 6th graders and 7th graders um, about the creation, about Genesis 1 and 2, and one of the moms, sweet mom, loved Jesus, and um, was a science teacher. My dad's a science teacher and chemist, so we had great conversations, but um, one of the things, one day she wasn't happy um, about a couple of things we were teaching, and I said, you can teach what you want at home. Um, this is where we're at. Um, we're, we weren't teaching some very narrow view, um, and, I, and, and she just said to me one day that, you know, God wouldn't lie to us about what we have observed and seen. And I, really, I was a young youth, but I didn't really know what to say. 
Um, I'm not sure I really said the best thing, but I think what I said was, is maybe God is a little further ahead of us in this whole understanding of creation than we want to believe that we are. Maybe he's a little ahead of the, of the curve in science. Maybe we're trying to catch up, and we're still grappling too. We're still trying to figure some of these things out, but let's trust God. So I think that's an interesting point. You know, in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. He's at Mars Hill, and there, he observes a city full of idols. That's what he sees. And when you come to Acts 17, this is what you see. In Acts 17, he's there, he's talking to different philosophers, he sees all these idols, and then he's, he, t- he starts talking about the, this, the altar to the unknown God, and he uses it, and he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he's addressing all the people in the Areopagus, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is his opportunity to take people who don't know God and show them his creator. And he made from one man, from every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, because he is actually not far from us. You know, what Paul did there is he took the created order and the fact that and the truth of Genesis 1, and he used it. He used it to teach people about who God is, that the people who were seeking, people who were trying to find, it's like finding your way in the dark toward God. And there's so much order that God has created into the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. That this order produces in many people a seeking that God uses to bring people to his son. And so I would encourage us today in that. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're seeking. Keep seeking. Keep looking. And maybe I would also encourage us as believers in Christ. Maybe there's people in your life. Some of you are teachers. You, you may have lots of opportunities in this. But maybe there are people in your life in which the creation account of God ordering all things is a window for you to begin to have a conversation about God with people close to you, to get them to a place where they can hear the gospel. And if you have children, point out to them the order in which all, the order that you see all around you. When you go to school and you're on your way to school and you're praying, pray something like this. God, I pray that my kids, I pray they would see the order In math class, the things are ordered. Two plus two equals four. That's ordered. They would see your design in science class. I've got one kid in my family. He just loves science. And so because he loves science, we get to talk about God and his design of all things. So see these things. Talk to your kids about these things, that God is a God of order. Well, God is sovereign. He loves and cares. He's ordered the creation. What about us Where do we fit in? Last point, your creator has uniquely designed you. I'm going to spend the next three or four weeks talking about this, and so I'm just going to mention this today. And let me give you four words. Rule, resemblance, rationality, relationship. That's what God has built into you and to me. He's called us to rule over 
the world that he's created. We're forming. How are we doing? See, only Jesus really ruled in a way. He's really the only guy who came to the planet and showed us what it meant to be in the image of God fully. He calmed the winds and the waves. This text tells Adam and Eve, in the future text in chapter 2, it's going to tell Adam and Eve that they're supposed to rule over this, have dominion, subdue it. How are we doing with that? See, you and I live in a broken world. We're trying to return the image of God. And ultimately, that will happen, but that's the in-between. But he calls them to rule, to have dominion, to subdue it. In the garden, he names, he gives Adam the ability to to name things and work and be a foreman of the earth. There's also resemblance. That's the idea of the image of God, that there are ways in which we resemble God. You think about the communicable attributes of God that we have like him, not fully, but we can love, we can show compassion, mercy, that he's built that into us. We can create or be creative. And then there's the rationality that's not given to the animal kingdom or any others. And then there's relationship. In chapter 2, what we're going to see is we're going to see relationship between God and man. We're going to see relationship between man and woman. And so rule, resemblance, rationality, relationship. We'll spend the next few weeks doing that. But here's an application. If the Spirit of God hovers over the unformed substance of the earth, and He cares deeply for it, and He loves it, and He fashions it, How much more does he care for the highest of creation that he's made, the unique creation he's made in you and me? I want you to put that in your proverbial pipe and think about that for a minute. If God is that intricately involved in the unformed substance of the earth, how much more does he care and love you? It's a great question. Genesis 1, the singular sovereign God creates all things out of nothing by the word of his power for his glory and to bless his people. There's a painting class competition. I don't know people in painting world like to compete, but I guess they do. Um, and the competition was to draw a painting that demonstrated peace the best. Three people applied. Three people painted pictures. The first person painted a sunset. And the sunset was over water that was completely still. It'd be like the picture that you put in your beach house. You know, like it's just this perfect sunset picture that you put in a beach house. The second person um, drew a a picture of a sleeping kitten rolled up in a ball. If you like cats, you know what they do after that? Anyway. Um, And then the third person, though, drew a very different picture. It was a picture of a raging storm. A raging storm, there was trees bending, water raging, but in the cleft of a, of a big rock, you could see a tiny little bird in a raging sea. And that bird was singing. And the teacher determined that the most, that the best painting wasn't the one of the perfect sunset because that's not how life works. Not the one of the bunny, that was cute, but the one that most resembled real life. Genesis 1 is kind of like the sunset. It's it's the perfect picture. We don't live in Genesis 1. We live in post-Genesis 3. 
We're all kind of brokenness that we live in. And God is returning that. He's returning that through his son, Jesus, for sure. But we're not there yet. So it's a great picture for us to be reminded that peace comes in the cleft of the rock, God's rock. That's who God is. We find it there. So your takeaway is this. We flourish best under God's loving rule. We flourish best under God's loving rule. That's his design. You can live that out today in a broken world. That's what you're going to see next week. Next week, we're going to see the flourishing that man had under God's loving rule. You can have that today. You can have that today. If you know Christ under his rule, you can flourish in the cleft of the rock. Let me pray. Thanks, Lord, for today. Thanks for your word. Um, Thank you that you're a creator who is not just sovereign, but he loves and he cares for his creation. He cares for us. He's made us uniquely. He's ordered things that we might see his glory. We ask that you use this in our lives this morning. Help us flourish under your loving rule. In Jesus' name, amen.